I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part three in the series, Practicing the Way, Community. For modern Westerners, honor is a concept lost in the fog of antiquity and translation. But in the scriptures, honor is an inescapable component of all healthy, thriving relationships. What did Paul mean when he commanded disciples of Jesus to honor one another above yourselves? For the last couple of weeks, we've been in a series and a set of practices that revisit and explore a concept that really is kind of always before us as a church, and that's the concept of community. If you've missed a week or two along the way, or if you're new, you can go back and catch up on the podcast. It really, I think it's a conversation worth having again and again, and it becomes newly foundational every time we have it. We've talked about what a community is. Um, and why a community matters. But before we finish the series and these practices, I think we need to talk a bit about how a community actually functions and how a community thrives. So to get there, let's start with the scriptures. Romans chapter 12. Romans is actually a letter written by a gentleman called Paul. It's often considered uh, his magnum opus. It's like his, his finest, most brilliant work. Really, it's chapter after chapter of complicated and profound theological insight, and it culminates in this new reality of Jews and Gentiles, two famously opposed, even hostile people groups, coming together in a new community of loving relationship. And that all builds up into chapter 11, and then in chapter 12, Paul begins to explain how they will actually live in a community now that they have it together. Let's read from Romans chapter 12, beginning with verse 9. You guys ready? Great, thank you. Romans 12, verse 9. Paul says, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless, do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is still, all this time later, as provocative as it is beautiful. But look back with me at verse 10. It says, be devoted to one another in love. And the question is, how? And the very next word is what? Anyone? Honor. Thank you. Honor one another above yourselves. Maybe more than one person said that, but I can barely hear anything anymore. It's a real problem, believe me. And honor, ladies and gentlemen, is a weird word. 
Uh, in America, we don't really use that term in the specific sense very much, or at least not the way that the, the Scriptures use it. We use other comparable ideas like respect or status or even a word like dignity. Some thinkers argue that the closest thing you get to an American honor culture is in the world of the Deep South, uh, where I grew up, and it's a culture steeped in honor traditions. Like, for example, to step in another person's home wearing a hat of any kind would dishonor both you and the host. And to ever, under any circumstances, respond to an elder, even by a couple years, or a stranger, without a sir or a ma'am on the end is dishonoring. To this day, I reflexively answer strangers, it's like people at the grocery store or a server at a restaurant with yes ma'am or no sir. I did, however, after much work, learn to just say pardon me when I don't hear what someone says. Because it turns out like if it, you know, you're somewhere and a lady is talking and you're in the Pacific Northwest and you don't hear what they say and you answer them by going, ma'am? They don't know what the heck you're talking about, and then you're, they're as confused as you are, and the whole thing is, the whole conversation's a mess. But when I was growing up, if someone were to answer someone who's older than them or someone not close to them with a simple, yeah, or no, it was honestly kind of comparable to someone just standing up and cussing and spitting in the middle of church. Everyone would react to that, and they would. I mean, they would visibly react if they heard something like that. Now, if you're not from the Deep South, that probably sounds bizarre, and that's totally fine. For the most part, Americans don't really have a unified or kind of historical paradigm for honor. Maybe a decent example for some of you, though you wouldn't have called it honor, would be the strange sort of social hierarchy in high school in which some people clearly have more status than others and some people clearly have very low status and they're treated differently because of either thing. We have a handful of other incomplete examples, but they mostly peter out in the realm of like flawed synonyms, like the way we celebrate and affirm individuals on their birthdays commemorate their lives in a sense. Uh, but for most people, those days are, are like about getting a handful of presents and maybe having a get-together with some friends. Other holidays like Mother's Day, Father's Day adhere to a similar kind of, well, kind of, but not really, comparison to honor. We often want to assign honor to a father or mother on a holiday, but that desire is often, not always, but often subsumed by materialism. So you just buy them junk that they don't need, and then you go out to dinner, call it a day. If you've traveled in Christian circles, maybe you've heard the word honor thrown around in a weird way that seems to differ, its definition differs wildly, person to person, context to context. Um, honestly, I started to, in the last few years, have something of an allergic reaction to the, at least to the Christianese use of the word honor, which in my experience basically becomes the lazy shorthand to describe this, the way a certain person would like to be treated. So pastors will talk about their church honoring them by submitting to their authority. Or a while back, a good friend of mine was navigating a really difficult conflict with someone at her church, and she kept saying of this other person, she's not honoring me. And I was like, what does that mean? It's, it's a really weird word. So most of us, myself absolutely included, arrive at the New Testament's teaching on honor, and there's a lot of it, and you sort of shrug or reinterpret it another way and then just move on. And yet, there it is, right at the very heart of what it means to be in community with one another is the word honor, and specifically, honor one another above yourselves. 
The word that Paul uses in Romans 12, 10 is teme, and interestingly, you can translate that same exact word as value or price. It was uh, originally a financial term. So to teme someone was to offer a gift in keeping with their status, and to not offer that gift was to dishonor them. In fact, the same word is translated as money or as price elsewhere in the New Testament. It's actually where we get the English word honorarium, which is a word that describes the kind of financial gift that, say, Van City gives to someone who isn't part of our community proper but comes as a guest teacher. In our case, it's not much of an honorarium, but an honorarium nonetheless. Or when you ask someone to an officiate, uh, officiate a wedding, you, they are typically paid an honorarium. It's a financial number that indicates the value the giver places on that person's contribution. And that's what the word is getting at. Honor is assigning value to a person or recognizing the value of that person. Look at it this way. Glory is another strange word in the Bible. It has several meanings. One of those meanings is a kind of implicit value. It's there whether you recognize it or not. So God has glory. Whether you assign value to God or not, He just has it. Whether you choose to recognize it or not, He just has it. But honor is the value that we assign to a person or thing. In this sense, worship is an act of honor. What Paul is getting at in tonight's text is that disciples of Jesus who are in community with one another should honor one another, recognize and value the person and their contribution to the family. And please note, this has nothing to do with flattery. It's definitely not carefully curated praise on social media, which is, I'm convinced, almost always as much about or more so about the person giving the praise and the person receiving it. To honor one another is to show genuine and meaningful appreciation and admiration for another person with respect, acknowledging their personhood and their accomplishments without jealousy or critique or agenda. A while back, uh, Cam and Patrick and I went to a conference together. It was great stuff, some speakers we really wanted to hear from. But there also happened to be a good helping of like noteworthy megachurch pastors and authors milling around in the crowd. So there's a lot of elbow rubbing and stuff like that. And the three of us, it was like these giant uh, teams representing other churches. And we we're like, doo, 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 three guys, three guys, Van City, no one's heard of us. And the three of us kept noticing the way that people would come up to us and ask enough questions to realize, oh, wait, you're not famous at all and your church is small. And then they'd kind of be like, okay, bye. And they'd go on to the next conversation and behave as though we didn't exist for the rest of the conference. But the big dogs, the big dogs got lots of attention, lots of praise. People lined up to talk to them, said glowing things about them in front of other people on stage. It was this whole like circular exchange of praise and affirmation. So there was a very clear felt distribution of honor and status to some but not to others. And what Paul's getting at is that that should level out across the entire community. Honor one another above yourselves. In The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis writes this interesting thing. He says, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, 
all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. So what Paul is saying in Romans is that we ought to treat the people in our communities as if they are actually made in God's image image and loved by Him, because they are. The translation I've read tonight doesn't quite capture the hyperbole in Greek. Other translations have Paul saying, outdo one another in showing honor. The idea being that our eagerness and readiness to honor one another should reach overload status. But most of us don't operate out of that kind of disposition, do we? In which we're so generous with honor that we trip over one another in our race to dole it out to one another. And it's weird that we aren't given the great wealth of commands throughout the entire library of writings we call the scriptures that specifically ask us to honor one another or to honor God or the way that honor works. Of course, all the way back in Exodus, in what we often call the Ten Commandments, sons and daughters are commanded to honor their fathers and mothers. In 1 Peter chapter 3, we read, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect, or that can be translated, honor them as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Now, don't get distracted by that weaker partner line. It's not what some of you worry it might be. The idea is that in terms of social capital in the first century, women were absolutely, quote unquote, weaker or understood to be lesser than. And what's beautiful about this passage is that Peter is acknowledging that sad reality without buying into it. How do we know that he's not buying into it? Because the text commands husbands to honor their wives rather than the other way around, which is how anyone else would have said that in the first century. This is a radical teaching subversively ahead of its time. And not only that, the command is so serious that if husbands fail to honor their wives, they will hinder their own prayers. That is serious stuff. And on that note uh, of commands that seem to our modern sensibilities scandalous, but are actually up to something amazing, look at this from 1 Timothy 6. It says, all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect, or that, again, could be translated, should honor them, so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Now, slavery in the ancient Mediterranean was very different than the term as we now understand it. Today, completely unlike American slavery, it didn't have to do with ethnicity. It was completely uh, unlike slavery in the fast fashion industry or the food industry or even sex trafficking. Now, that doesn't mean that it was good, but it was more like what we would think of as indentured service. So a closer idea or a translation of this same text for us would be something like, consider your employers worthy of full respect. Honor them. Well, why does all that matter? Because Paul is saying, you should honor your boss. Do not gripe or gossip or slander them. Honor them. You want to squirm even more? Look at Romans chapter 13, which has to do with honoring the governing authorities. It says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respects, then respect. If honor, then honor. Now, this text has been, I would argue, abused to get the church into bed with the state. But it's actually fascinating for a number of reasons. The Bible actually has a very low view of what it calls the empire, which we would think of as like government powerhouse or big state power. Jesus was executed by the state. His people were oppressed and abused by the state for generations. And if you're thinking, 
Well, it's weird that Paul would say that you should honor the governing authorities, but he probably wouldn't have written that about Obama, or he wouldn't have written that about Trump, or he wouldn't have written that about whoever it is that you don't like. But most scholars date the writing of Romans to correspond with the reign of Caesar Nero, who was the first great persecutor of disciples of Jesus. Nero would, one thing among many he would do is dip disciples of Jesus in wax, then put them on a stake and light them on fire to light his gardens at night. He is well recognized inside and outside of early Christian writings as a bloodthirsty monster. And at that time, we think Paul writes this, honor those in authority. So clearly, that doesn't mean that you have to support politicians or advocate their causes or their morals. It doesn't mean that there are Christian politicians or Christian ways to vote. Honoring them is something really different. And this kind of thing shouldn't surprise us. Jesus, after all, taught that we are to bless and love our enemies. Think of that passage we just read from the same letter, that bless, do not curse. Are Christians famous for honoring political figures with whom they disagree? No, this is rhetorical. No, not at all. Look at another text from 1 Thessalonians 5. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard, or that can be translated, honor them in love because of their work. Now this text is talking about what we would call pastors or church leaders, which I realize seems weird coming from me, but there it is. I could have skipped it, but here it is. So let me just say this, uh, if I can be a tad vulnerable... Uh, for a moment with you guys. Before planting Van City, I worked on a team pretty low down the hierarchy uh, for another church before I was a pastor, before I was anything like that. And I was also just a church goer in the traditional sense. I just worked there um, and I didn't have any kind of say in decision making in the, in the like traditional sense or anything like that. And I used to get so bummed hearing the way that people in that church would criticize and malign and gripe about the church leadership. And that's not to say that the leaders were in any sense perfect. They weren't, and they knew they weren't. But in my community or out to lunch with friends, I would just hear people nitpick them to death. And I would think, man, these, these people, these leaders, they are far from perfect, but they're doing the best that they can. Yes, with mistakes, and yes, with trial and error, but they work really, really hard. And now I know that all too well. I signed up for this job. I can take it. But every now and again, things make it back to me that people in our church say about me or Cam or Patrick, whoever it might be. And it's unpleasant, to say the least. So I just go and talk about it with my therapist. Um, but the idea is that uh, we never put leaders on pedestals. We never assume that they're perfect. We never assume that they don't make mistakes. And it's not that we never confront leaders on the mistakes that they make. But the idea is also that we are not to nitpick or critique them to death either. Community is something that builds up. It does not tear down. And it's not just the leaders who are to be given honor. The New Testament also acknowledges those who do the often overlooked work in the church community. Look at this from 1 Corinthians 12. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, these parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. Back at that church that planted us, Patrick, who's uh, our director of operations at Fan City, was kind of like the guy in charge of all the building and facility stuff. He led the team of janitors. So on a Sunday or like an office event or a class or a dinner or whatever it might be, it was Patrick's job to make sure things got set up, went smoothly, and were cleaned up when everything was over. So the thing is, most of his job he did alone. 
um, before everyone got there and after everyone left. And I'll, I'll never forget, after our team left to plant Van City, one thing I heard over and over again was, man, we had no idea how much Patrick did until he was gone and no one was doing it anymore. But he wasn't the dude on the stage. He managed the janitorial team. He was out of sight, out of mind. Not all the time, but in some ways. So, so many people show up to Van City on a given Sunday and they go straight downstairs to attempt to teach small children about Jesus. And some of them care deeply about kids and they want to be there, but a ton of them, quite frankly, just know that we need the help. And so they help. And they don't get to hang out up here and sing. They have to catch up with the teaching on the podcast. They, they change diapers. They resolve arguments. They have to call parents. Your kid's being weird. Happens to me. that They call me. Your kid's being weird. And meanwhile, we're up here doing our thing, not really giving a ton of thought as to what's going on downstairs. And when I think about the incredible value that Jesus places on kids, I think, man, we need to honor these generous men and women who serve our church in this way. Thank God for them, especially given the astronomical amount of small children that are down there. And, and my kids, it's not for nothing, my kids come home and they talk about you guys that serve down there. Beck, uh, on a Sunday night, I was like, who's your teacher tonight? And he'll tell me right away. I'll say, oh, it was Mike, or it was Kevin, or it was Tiffany, or it was Levi, it was Simon, it was Rahali, it was Mark, it was Carrie. And I'll ask, okay, well, what did you learn? And then he'll tell me. He will actually tell me a Bible story that he learned downstairs with you guys as his teachers. And, of course, the help of the orange owl called Ollie. If you want, that's my plug for uh, working with Man City Kids. If you want to know more about Ollie the owl, you have to sign up. There are so many people that do stuff that isn't glamorous and, and frankly, sometimes isn't all that fun. And it often goes unnoticed or unappreciated. But if they end up, if they up and left one Sunday, everyone would feel it. Things wouldn't work. The way of the kingdom is to honor the one who serves. Paul is saying these people should get special honor. And the list of biblical passages about honor goes on. We, of course, are to honor God. But one way we do that is with our bodies, of all things. Look at this from 1 Corinthians. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Good grief. If ever there was a passage and an idea so flagrantly at odds with the status quo in the here and now in our culture, it sure seems like this is it. A while back, a good friend of mine who's a pastor, uh, was talking to someone in their community and she was kind of going back and forth uh, in discussion, dialogue about the way that abortion is being reframed as a social justice issue. And this person says to a friend of mine she's, uh, that she's like, look, I understand what the Bible says about sanctity of life and about nonviolence, but I just think my body is mine to do with as I see fit. And my friend said to her, theologically, that's wrong twice. Now, that is an idea that sets fire to our radical individualism. You are not your own. But if very few of us think of sexual immorality as something that dishonors God, looking at porn or masturbation or sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend or fiance, whatever it might be, it dishonors God because it's not your body. It's God's. 
And if you think that makes God out to sound cruel and possessive, think again. God's desire in all of this is to honor us. Talking about humanity, the psalmist writes this, You have made them, human beings, a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. Not just upright, well-behaved Christian humans, but humans in general. You have crowned them with honor. That's in the general sense. There's also specific honor. Look at what Jesus himself says in John 12. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. That is a promise. Now, this is only a selection, a brief kind of running commentary. The point is that God has designed our relationships in community and with Him to flourish and to thrive with and through honor. A friend of mine put it this way, a community of honor is where love, value, gratitude, praise, and recognition are constantly flowing between all members. So ask yourself, does that sound like the world in which you live? Or are you more familiar with a world around you marked by self-congratulation and jealousy, passive aggression, cynicism, sarcasm, complaining, and slander? Not always, of course, but these things are all part and parcel of life in the modern digital age. In my experience, ours is a culture of dishonor, a culture of contempt, The dictionary defines contempt as the feeling that a person or a thing is beneath consideration, worthless, or deserving scorn. If honor is about ascribing value to someone or something, contempt is about tearing value away from a person or thing. To contempt is to gossip or judge or belittle or nitpick to death or label or dismiss someone. David Hume argues that when we show contempt, we first take a piece of someone, an an aspect of them, and then we make it the entirety of their personhood so that they're easier to tear down. We focus on what he called bad qualities of someone, and then we view their entire personhood through this lens. Here's an example from this last week in popular culture, something I'm sure a bunch of you read about. TV personality and former Saved by the Bell actor Mario Lopez came under harsh uh, scrutiny when he was asked as a dad to comment on, of all things, transgender three-year-olds. And he said, I didn't want to misquote Mario Lopez, so he said, I think if you come from a place of love, you really can't go wrong. At the same time, if you're three-year-old, if you're three years old and you're saying you're feeling a certain way or you think you're a boy, think you're a girl, whatever the case may be, I think that's, it's dangerous as a parent to make that determination. Now, he said this, and then a rage mob erupted on the internet with all manner of famous celebrities calling for him to apologize and to be fired. Uh, Major publications ran headlines that called Lopez transphobic, his ideas are dumb and dangerous. The same day, his Wikipedia entry was edited to read, Mario Lopez is a transphobic, misogynist, American actor and entertainment journalist. This has become a painfully ordinary exchange in an outraged culture. Regardless of how we agree or disagree, that's really beside the point. Or what we think about complicated issues is beside the point. It's easier to deal with people if we can reduce them to a single word and organize them into categories of good and evil, in or out. It reminded me of this bit from SNL. Because this game is produced by Twitter. (laughs) Twitter, one mistake, and we'll kill you. 
The problem is, all people are a frustrating mix of right and wrong and good and evil at any given moment in their life journey, let alone in a moment throughout the day. So contempt is a dangerous game in that it offers a temporary distraction from our own evil where we set fire to someone else. So we find celebrities and politicians or church leaders or your, you know, someone in your community and you pick them apart like starving buzzards. And it's not that these people are never guilty of evil. They could very well be. It's that all the while there's evil in us as well. But when we're setting fire to someone else, we get to compare them to ourselves. And for a moment, we feel superior, more honorable than they are. It's honor on the backs of the shamed. The internet outrage mob is as much about virtue signaling as it is about destroying the offender. When the mob wags their outraged finger at whoever is on this week's chopping block, they're also saying, I know better. I'm so much more enlightened. And when we sit around saying, isn't this person in our community annoying? Or man, I hate the way that our church does this or that thing. We are, of course, inferring that we know better and that we do better. So lowering another person's value becomes about raising your own. This is the essence of contempt. And what's scary is that we not only live and breathe contempt in the culture around us, we like it. Social psychologist Jonathan Haidt says of scandal and contempt, scandal is great entertainment because it allows people to feel contempt, a moral emotion that gives feelings of moral superiority while asking nothing in return. With contempt, you don't need to right the wrong, as with anger, or flee the scene, as with fear or disgust. And best of all, contempt is made to share. Stories about the moral failings of others are among the most common kinds of gossip. They are a staple of talk radio, and they offer a ready way for people to show that they share a common moral orientation. Tell an acquaintance a cynical story that ends with both of you smirk smirking and shaking your heads, and voila, you've got a bond. But the community of Jesus is to defy the culture of contempt in order to become a family of honor. So before we end, let's actually compare and contrast these ideas of honor and contempt. First, honor is about opening the flow of blessing and contempt is about shutting it off. Let me explain what I mean by that. A while back, we unpacked in detail the story of Jesus. He returns to his hometown of Nazareth. This is after his kind of ministry has been in full swing for a bit. And he shows up to teach and to heal sick people. That's kind of his bag. But the people there, his old friends, his, his family members, they scorn him. The story goes, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? The people in Nazareth ask. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters still with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. And listen, he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. So look at the way that Jesus' friends and family lower his value, lower his status. This guy's a nobody. His family's all around us. We know where he came from. He's just one of us. He's not enlightened. He's not some amazing teacher. Where does he think that he gets all this stuff from? And then in the story, who misses out as a result? They do, right. Jesus moves on. When you honor someone, you open yourself up to the possibility of blessing. 
to the access to their wisdom or talent or kindness or help or insight or whatever it might be that they have to offer and vice versa, your ability to bless them in return. But when we treat others with contempt, we cut off the channel of possible blessing. Next, honor tends to bring out the best in other people and contempt tends to bring out the worst. A ton ton of what it means to honor someone is in the verbal exchange. It's in what you say to other people. Interestingly, throughout the entire library of writings we call the Bible, one motif that surfaces again and again and again is in the sheer life-giving or else devastating power of words. You can give life and hope with words, and you can use words to take life and hope away. Here's an example. One fascinating, sobering bit of truth that I've heard a million times over since becoming a parent is this. Your kids will live up to what you speak over them, for better or for worse. A therapist tells me this. Abby's counselor tells me this. Psychologists and theologians write about this. Our pediatrician has been saying it all along. Man, when parents go around saying things over their kids, often in public, things like, oh, they don't mind them, they never pay attention, or, oh my gosh, they're a terror, they're so naughty all the time, or they don't listen, or whatever it might be, they will likely live up to the thing you keep saying about them. So Abby and I have taken the advice of these people, older and wiser parents, um, and we work to speak life into and over our kids. Not perfect by any means, believe me, but we're trying. So if one of them is being rude or unkind, we work to not call them rude or unkind. We might say something like, what you said is mean, and you are not mean. You are kind, so you should talk as if you are actually kind. That's who you are. And then we choose to believe that for them. Point is, when we treat people with contempt, you help to shape them into someone that is contemptible. It doesn't mean it's all your fault, but it means you're participating in the hardening of their state. It's not just kids. This is true of spouses. This is true of your friends. This is true of the people in your community. I get so bummed at the ease with which we tear people, usually the people we love the most, down. Abby and I were hanging out with someone a while back, and their spouse wasn't there. And I was so taken aback, by the way, that in the name of like good-natured razzing and kind of teasing, this person absolutely eviscerated their spouse with critique. And I remember telling Abby that knowing their spouse, I was willing to bet that they would have been absolutely heartbroken. I, I know if it were me, I would have been. From what I'm sure to them, the person that was issuing out this critique, to them it sounded like good-natured, kind of humorous teasing. And believe me, I know how easy it is when you're frustrated or bummed to take people to task with your words. I have been guilty of it. I have been called out on it many times. I've had to apologize for it many times, repent of it. I get it. But then I see in Jesus a willingness to approach contemptible people and to honor them. And it's not just the stories that sound sentimental to us now, like Jesus caring for the poor and the oppressed and honoring them, which he absolutely did, but he also honored the oppressors. He honored criminals who were exploiting his own people. Jesus honored a man called Saul who was actively killing disciples of Jesus. Saul's reputation for violence and hate was well known, and Jesus said of him in that state of being, he said, and I quote, Saul is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. And in doing so, he released Saul, who's now called Paul, into his destiny 
to change the course of human history forever. That's what honor can do. Honor releases others into their destinies. Contempt disempowers extraordinary people so that they settle for the status quo. When you go out of your way to speak value and blessing over someone else, you stand to release them into their full potential. And I don't mean to turn this into like an after-school special or anything like that, but I can think of examples of this in my own life. I'm sure that you can too. A couple that came to mind when I was reading and studying this week was I remember that when I was in seventh grade, um, lousy student, unhappy with school, certainly not fitting the mold of what a, a student is in the Georgia education system. And I wanted badly to read a novel that had been banned by our public school system. It was in the rotation for a while, and then they took it off the shelves, Flowers for Algernon by Daniel Keyes. And, uh, and my literature teacher, Mrs. Sanford, gave me her personal copy. She put it in my hand, and she said, take this, I only ask that you send me a copy of your first novel when you write it, and you will. And I did. I sent her a copy of my first novel. A few years ago, I was about to give uh, my first sermon in front of a group of people. Felt like an unqualified idiot, still do. And, uh, and my good friend and mentor, uh, he put his hand on my shoulder and he prayed over me. This is the dude I look up to that taught me how to teach. He said, I see this in you. I see this calling over your life. And here we are. So blame him, I guess. Honor also creates a place of deep trust in conflict. Conflict is inevitable, but contempt activates deep fear and sabotages our hopes for reconciliation. This is a church that we have our fair share of conflict, um, believe it or not. Heck, I have a ton of said experience firsthand. <laughs> and what sometimes happens in the confrontation aspect of conflict is a studied focus on the other person's wrongdoing. Maximize their offense, minimize any part that we've played in it. We've already gossiped with a small echo chamber of friends that we know will affirm our frustration. We've amped ourselves up on it. We've confirmed our own bias. And then we blaze into the conversation. Confrontation goes poorly, and we blame the other person that it fell apart. Thing is, regardless of how wrong the other person is, and they often are, no one responds well to contempt. No one, regardless of how they appear on the outside. Your brain knows when you're being devalued in a way that's destructive and a wall goes up. Well, remember what I was saying about correcting my kids earlier. What if that was our approach to confronting one another? Where what you, when you go into a confrontation, hey, listen, you did this and this is our time to call you out on it. Instead, saying, hey, listen, before I say anything, I want, to know, I want you to know that I love you and I respect you and I value you, and if that's not true, don't talk until it is. And then you say, I believe that you are kind, even if I don't believe what you said in this moment was. Tell me your side of the story. Help me understand so that we can reconcile. My friend Bethany I mentioned earlier, is, she's like a sister to me, so we've had lots of fights. And I remember once she called me out on something mean that I had said. She was right. It was mean. I shouldn't have said it. And she, I remember she worded um, the confrontation this way, she said, it really bummed me out because I know that that's not you. So even her confrontation was honoring to me. She was recognizing that the way I acted was not in accordance with what was true about me. I don't think that you can maintain any healthy long-term relationship without honor. So the question becomes, how do you put this all into practice? 
The next practice, if you're in a community or you want to get together with a handful of friends, is up at practicingtheway.org slash community. This week, it's uh, the emotionally healthy relationship skill is stop mind reading and clarify expectations. I love that one personally. So for those of you on the fence or if you're feeling skeptical, again, the invitation is that you would keep an open mind and just give it a shot. At the very least, please listen, don't bring your community down if there are other people who are genuinely trying to give it a shot. Let them have space to work through the practice together. And for, for those of you who are in, those of you who really want to find a way to live this out, my encouragement and my encouragement for myself is to search your heart tonight and in the days ahead for someone that you have dishonored, anyone that you've treated with contempt, and then apologize and make things right. Don't just say, oh, I, yeah, I, I dishonored someone and then apologize to God in your mind and move on. Find a way to make amends, reverse contempt with honor. And then beyond that, I think the, the encouragement for all of us is to work to take up a few deliberate means of honoring the people in your life one easy way is to just speak words of value over someone else. And by that, I don't mean uh, be generic or lazy. I mean be specific and thoughtful. When you see someone who's working to follow Jesus well, point that out. Say that you recognize it. Shout that kind of thing from the rooftops. When you see things like kindness and faithfulness and discipline and self-denial, acknowledge those things. Celebrate those things. Do it in front of other people if that makes sense and if that's appropriate. Or you could write people a letter. I mean, I like getting nice letters. I don't know who doesn't. You could give, this sounds materialistic, but you could give someone a gift. And by that, I mean like offer someone a meal or a gesture, a token, some kind of physical token of your sentiment and say, listen, this is just a small token of my appreciation for you and the value that you bring to my life, especially if they're the type of person who feels loved by gift giving. Listen to people when they talk. It's a huge thing. And please listen to this one if you hear nothing else. Put your phones away when you are in the company of other people. I know you guys at this point think I'm an Amish nut or something like that, but I honestly think it is deeply dishonoring when I see people trying to connect with another person, whether it's two friends or people on a date or parents and their kids especially, and one person is stealing glances at their phone. Deeply dishonoring. Heck, when we play D&D &D together, and this is right, Michael, if anyone looks at their phone, their character takes an immediate 75 damage. That's right. Oh, someone just got hit with an ax out of nowhere. You better put that phone down. <laughs> talk about, I mean, that's funny, but talk about taking from a person's value. What you are saying is this matters a little bit more. Give people your full attention, whether they're awesome and noteworthy or someone unspectacular and ordinary. Another great way to honor someone is to yield to someone else's preferences. Not to be unhealthy and passive, but to deliberately lay your own preferences aside from time to time for the sake of another person's preferences. You can also draw out a quiet person's preferences, someone who never speaks up for themselves. Ask them, hey, what would you prefer? We'd like to go with your opinion for the evening. And with it, draw out their opinions and the unique contribution that they stand to make to the community. What we're after is more than just a few adjustments in our personal lives to operate more in honor and less in contempt. Yes, you do want to find ways to operate more in honor and less in contempt, but my hope and prayer for myself and for all of us is that our small church family would become a family of honor. And for all that to happen, 
we all have to pitch in because this is an idea that is radically at odds with the culture around us. It is as subversive as anything in the teachings of Jesus, to honor one another above yourself. But what an incredible beacon of light we stand to become if we embrace this, a place where all sorts of different messed up people deliberately choose to speak value and life over one another rather than tear them down with contempt, whether they deserve it or not. I want to belong to a community of honor, and I know I can't be alone in that. So let's pray and invite God's Spirit to empower us in the night and days ahead. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.